On behalf of Leinberg Information Services, this is Bob Keebler, and joining us today are Jonathan Blockmacher and Marty Shankman to talk about individual income tax planning after tax reform. Marty and Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Today we're going to cover individual income tax planning after tax reform. You guys, of course, approach this from the perspective of an estate planner. I think you have a lot of valuable insight into things like itemized deductions and how that will be approached, looking at this from an income-shifting perspective, talking about the kitty tax, the role of life insurance. All these things will come to the surface now, and people are going to kind of have to rethink. Certainly, itemized deductions haven't been shattered, but the paradigm shifted, and we all need to adjust our vantage point. So let's just jump in right away, Jonathan, with itemized deductions. Uh, what do you perceive, and more importantly, how will people react to it? Well, Bob, as you know, they essentially said that no itemized deductions are going to be allowed after 2017 until 2026 again. The fact that there's just been a temporary disallowance of, let's call it, most itemized deductions is something that has to be kept in mind in planning. Some of the good news is that you are going to get rid of uh, the uh, the so-called P's limitation under Section 68, which cut back uh, almost all itemized deductions uh, by, by reason of your income being at a very high level. That has now been eliminated. And one of the things that means is that you can get a better break with things like charitable deductions, especially if you were living in a state which didn't have a state income tax and you didn't pay enormous uh, local property taxes. That's that's kind of good news. Uh, the the kind of uh, and the good news also is that for cash gifts to public charities, you can now reduce your taxable income not just by 50% of your adjusted gross income specially defined, but by 60% of your adjusted gross income specially defined. That's good. Also for 2017 and 18 you're allowed to take your medical expense deductions to the extent they exceed 7.5% of your adjusted gross income rather than 10%, which has been the rule forever and ever under the Internal Revenue Code. Some of the bad news that comes out is that personal exemptions have been eliminated except for certain disability trusts. Also, there has been a real tightening of deductions for entertainment expenses and adoption uh, employee expenses, and also the personal casualty loss deduction has been eliminated. So, Bob, when you sink your boat in one of the Great Lakes this summer and you're, that boat was worth a quarter of a million dollars, you're not going to be able to get a deduction for it. So, Bob, I would recommend that you either sink it in 2017 or wait until after 2025 when that deduction will arise again. Some of the limitations which are going to have a real, effect, a real effect on some people is a limitation on the interest deduction on home mortgage debt. As we know, for a long time, you've been able to deduct the debt, the interest on debt of up to a million dollars. That has now been cut back for new loans to $750,000. Perhaps the most significant change relates to the deduction for state and local taxes, in particular sales tax, income tax, and property taxes. 
those have now been limited to $10,000 a year, and that's going to have, I think, an enormous impact on the so-called blue states like New York, California, Oregon, and New Jersey, and places like Minnesota, where they had relatively high state and, in New York, local income taxes, which now will be allowed uh, only to the extent of $10,000, but that $10,000 limit also applies to sales taxes, and it also applies to real property taxes. So that's going to be a real change in things, and I think it will probably reduce the value of property in the blue states. And it will also mean that it may be more difficult to sell your home, and it may be more difficult for home builders to sell new homes, because when you look at what is it going to cost you each month to maintain that home with your mortgage payment, if you're above $10,000 for the real property taxes or you're in a state where there's an income tax, you're not going to be able to deduct it all. The good news on the other side is that the standard deduction has been increased to $12,000 for single people and $24,000 for a married couple. So those are some of the things that I think that need to be kept in mind. By the way, the alternative minimum tax has not been uh, repealed as there was a contention it might be, but the thresholds as to when it cuts in is there. And also there has been no real change in the deduction for contributions to qualified plans and to IRAs. However, your ability to recharacterize a Roth IRA where you've converted a traditional IRA to a Roth IRA and therefore you have to include the amount converted into gross income in the year in which you make that change, you are no longer going to be allowed to recharacterize it on your income tax return for that year. Again, this is a temporary thing. It will go away, but it's something that needs to be considered if you're talking about making some change. Marty, do you have any comments about any of those things? Yeah, I got I got a whole bunch of comments as we're all trying to think through the incredible ramifications of all these changes. And, and I think one of the things that's going to keep all of us on our toes is the ripple effects of these changes. It's going to take a fair amount of time to figure them out. So here's some preliminary thoughts. Uh, with the restrictions on employee business expenses and the dramatic increase in the uh, um, a standard deduction, uh, some businesses, especially closely held businesses, may want to rethink through uh, reimbursement policies for employee business expenses since where employees may have gotten a deduction in the past, they're not going to get anything now. The restrictions on uh, casualty loss deductions uh, might suggest that some clients may want to rethink the deductibles. For, for, for decades, forever, I've always encouraged clients to take uh, bigger deductibles on their insurance policy because it's not worth the hassle and time of making a claim. But now knowing that they're going to get no deduction for those uh, first dollars of uh, uh, uninsured loss, they may want to revisit that. I think we may see um, a change in how clients perceive the calculus of whether or not to take a home office deduction. Uh, I personally have not taken one simply because the cost, the hassle, and the perceived increased uh, audit risk made it not worthwhile. But now with the uh, incredibly restrictive SALT limitation for many people in high-tax states, 
if they could otherwise qualify for a home office deduction, that may enable them to get some of the um, uh, property tax deductions that they're losing on the, on the individual side. And there will probably be an incentive for more people to file Schedule Cs and see what other expenses uh, that they had previously heretofore taken as itemized deductions, they can shift uh, to a Schedule E or a Schedule C. So apart from the, the entity issues that we're talking about, uh, either in another recording or later, um, I think we're going to see movement on the home office and reconsideration of a lot of that. Um, with respect to uh, uh, mortgage interest restrictions, our wealthier clients in the past faced a very different environment. So, for example, uh, a wealthy client's child may have taken out a large mortgage and secured a deduction for it, so there was some good income tax benefit to the child on the mortgage interest, and the parent may have been constrained by the uh, 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 exemption amount on how much they could give a child to buy a home. So now we have change on both sides of that equation, which may change the way we want to help clients plan to help their kids get homes. So with a with doubling of the exemption and a um, loss potentially on the kids buying uh, large homes because of the mortgage interest deduction rules, perhaps for wealthier clients, we'll see more of them shifting uh, gifts or using the existing irrevocable trust that can hold personal use assets to either loan or actually buy houses for children since the math on that will all change. Um, with um, uh, the changes, the, the elimination of the ability to deduct tax prep fees, um, practitioners are going to see clients, even if a client didn't ultimately get much of a deduction for it, I think psychologically, knowing that fees aren't deductible, I think we're all going to likely see more clients paying more than professional fees, uh, whether appropriate or not, out of business entities uh, to their professionals. And that's something we need to be alert for. It's not just a tax issue for the client if they're paying out of the wrong entity. I believe there could be ethics issues uh, depending on how we handle our billing. So if a client calls and insists that you bill an entity when you've really done personal work, uh, I think practitioners need to be very cautious. Uh, something I've done for many years in my practice that others may want to think about is when a client pays a, 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 a planning bill that's really a personal expense out of an entity, I list the payor in the actual billing system so that it's recorded where we got it from so I'm not part of uh, what might be an inappropriate allocation by the client. So I think it's not just issues for the clients, but that, that piece could actually affect practitioners. And I think these higher um, standard deductions are going to change how we plan for the remaining deductions for our clients, which will have a significant impact on, on, on uh, income tax planning, charitable giving, and uh, so on. So in the past, where clients were accustomed to taking their deductions from the SALT deduction alone, certainly for clients in high-tax states, and, and being well over the, the standard deduction, that may no longer be the case. And for many of our clients, um, and, and I think this is true for most practitioners, that many of their clients may be able to itemize, not assuredly will and not assuredly won't. So a lot of our clients are going to fall into that gray zone. How do we help them? I think bunching of deductions is, is going to be the rule for many clients, if not most. And what will that mean? So if a client would be paying, for example, uh, $10,000 a year in charitable contributions and received a deduction uh, in the past, paying $10,000 in charitable contributions is not going to get them over any threshold. And medical expenses may well be deductible for large elective procedures, plastic surgery, uh, and so on and so forth that's not insured. 
So I think what we're going to find is if a client may have in a coming year a large medical elective medical expense, we may choose or help the client choose that year to be the year in which they're going to bunch deductions. And in that one year, they may give, uh, using the same example of $10,000 a year for contributions, let's say three years worth, $30,000 worth of gifts to charity, put it into a donor-advised fund. I think we'll see a much increased use of donor-advised funds for the flexibility it affords, as in this illustration. So in that, in that, that selected or targeted deduction year, they'll incur their, their um, elective surgery and make a $30,000 gift to a donor-advised fund, exceed the itemized deduction uh, cap uh, amount, and get a uh, reasonable deduction for itemized deductions. Simply paying as they had in the past won't work any longer. So I could see a whole range of, of, of different changes to how we plan for all these different itemized deductions. And I think from just this brief discussion, we've talked about how it may change what, what the manner in which a client is filing uh, for, for a home-based business, uh, whether or not they're going to be treated as an employee or independent contractor, which is going to be a huge issue, um, how they plan their itemized deductions, how they structure the charitable gifts, and it even impacts estate planning in the example I gave on, on a child buying a home. So I think there's going to be lots and lots of ripple effects. And as time goes on, I think all of us uh, will start to see more and more ways we can plan with this, this radical change in, in the planning uh, uh, structure. Jonathan, let's touch base on the kitty tax. Obviously, we have a change in how that's going to work. What opportunities, first of all, what changed and what opportunities are going to rise out of this? Well, the, the change doesn't relate to the uh, basically earned income that a child earns. So if the child has a paper route or works for a business and is paid, that compensation that the child receives is going to be taxed to the child as though he or she were a single individual even if they would otherwise fall under a category, for example, of being married. That's going to remain essentially the same. What does change is the taxation of their unearned income. For example, income that the child receives from the ownership of assets like stocks and bonds. Back since many, many years ago, the child would be taxed at the parent's rate. In other words, the child's unearned income would be uh, basically be ta taxed by adding it to the parent's income and then determining the tax rate. That's complicated, and the parent in some cases could choose to actually uh, take the child's unearned income and put it on his or her own and pay the tax accordingly. That has now changed. Now the child will be taxed on it, but the rates that the child faces are going to be those for an estate or um, a non-grantor trust. And under the new rules, uh, which is not very different from what they are now, you will reach the top rate, which for individuals is now 37%, no longer 39.6, at $12,500. So if the child has anything unearned income, the child has above uh, $12,500, it's going to be subject to that 37% rate of taxation. Again, that's going to change after 2025. What I think that means, and especially because of the opportunity to be able to transfer income-producing assets over to or for the benefit of children under the enhanced gift tax exemption, 
that it will probably be best, in fact, I've always felt it's best, don't give the property directly to the child, which in some cases would mean a Uniform Gift to Minors Act account, but do it to a trust. And personally, I would recommend you not use a 2503C trust because that means the property has to come out to the child or be made available for the child to take it out at age 21. But put it in a trust, and then you can determine whether or not to distribute that income to the child, and perhaps some of that unearned income will fall below the $12,500 threshold for that child, or whether it should be kept in the trust. Part of whether or not you want to distribute it out to the child would depend on whether the child is subject to a state and possibly local income tax or not. So if you have a trust which has been well seated, you can have that trust exist in a state without an effective income tax on the trust's income. So that's, I think, an important factor to consider understanding that we will revert back to the current kitty tax rules, at least the rules before this act took effect, in 2026. Marty, any further comment on that? Yeah, I think one of the things that's going to change in planning with children, uh, just to emphasize uh, the point, because I think it's significantly different, is when we have kids uh, or family members, say the parents in a high-tax state and kids in a no-tax state, that may be more the focal point of what we're doing. And I also think, and we'll get more to this when we get to the estate tax section, the nature and structure of trusts will change. Uh, for a very, very long time, the default way any trust was set up, except for a ding or a ning, for example, would have been as a grant or trust. And for some of the reasons that Jonathan just mentioned and others will talk about, there may be a greater use of non-grant or trusts. Yeah, Marty, I think that's very, very important to consider because it may well be that wealthy people, even though the thresholds at which they're going to get to the top tax bracket, uh, they may be better off having it received by a trust, especially because having the income received by a trust provides the opportunity to shift that income over to any beneficiary of the trust who may be in, for example, a no-tax state and getting it in, taxed in a no-tax state may be exceptionally important because you will no longer be able to deduct the state and local income taxes to the extent they, together with the sales tax and together with the property taxes, exceed $10,000. That's an enormous change, and I think, Marty, you're right, that some reconsideration must be given to uh, avoiding grantor trust status. It may be possible to do other things to keep it in trust without shifting it actually over to the beneficiary so it's taxed to him or her and you're going to reduce what is in the trust because of it being distributed out to the beneficiary. Let me just add uh, to reemphasize a point that I believe you already made, Jonathan, but I think just so it's so critical to everything we're doing. Um, we don't know how long-lived any of this stuff will be. It's not just the sunsets that would almost assure that there may be a change down the road, but it's also possible that if we have a new administration and a new composition in Congress in 2020 that these rules could again be tinkered with. So we kind of need to keep that on our radar screen with whatever we do because it wouldn't be advantageous to find ourselves in a, in a structure that works under these rules and then find they change yet again. Well, Marty, that's true. And in fact, although we're not going to go through it now, one of the most pressing problems that your clients are going to bring to you is what form of business 
or what form of entity should I use to operate my business, a C-Corp, where the tax rates have now dropped to 21%, or an S-Corp, or a partnership, or something else, that's going to be exceptionally complicated, but the most vexing thing, as Marty just indicated, it's probably going to be all short-lived because of the sunset provisions that apply to this act, or will certainly uh, likely apply to this act, but also because of a change in the composition of the power structure in Washington, which means that all of this could be changed as soon as a new administration and composition of the Congress uh, goes into effect, which could be as early as January of 2021. Marty and Jonathan, this has been tremendously insightful. Thank you for being with us today. On behalf of Lineberg Information Services, this has been Bob Keebler with Marty Shankman and Jonathan Blockmacher. Thank you for joining us today.